Gospel of Matthew, the 14th chapter today, we hear this gospel lesson. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, Jesus was there alone. But by this time, the boat was battered by the waves and was far from the land, for the wind was against them. 
And early in the morning, Jesus came walking toward them on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. We continue today with our look in the Older Testament, the Hebrew Bible. We will have finished looking at the life of Jacob. And now we start looking at the life of one of his sons, his youngest son, Joseph. I want you to note that in between what we did last week and this week, there are some important things that happen that seem not so important to us if we don't pay attention. One is a story um, about the 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 about Jacob's only daughter or only known daughter. Her name was Dinah, and there's a story of her being sexually assaulted, and. Her father does nothing about it, but her brothers do. And you're looking at me saying, why do we need to know that? Well, you need to know that because in the lineage far down the way from Dinah comes somebody else you may have heard of. His name was David, and he was a king. And in David's story, there is a story of his daughter being sexually assaulted, and David does nothing just like his great-grandpappy did, or didn't. And he leaves it to his brothers, he leaves it to his sons, her brothers, to take care of. And ultimately, in that instance, the brothers become so divided that it starts a civil war. It's a lesson at this dysfunctional family that seems to not learn any of their family lessons as they go. Also, in the course of the time between last week and this, Jacob meets his brother Esau. And if you'll remember, we left him afraid because he thought Esau was coming to kill him. In fact, Esau wanted to be reconciled with him. And Esau settles in a land, not the promised land, but Jacob settles in the promised land. Their genealogies are listed for us all. And all the way through, we see then finally Esau becomes Edom, and Edom is a nation. And this is important because we're seeing what is happening here. These men are going from being individuals to being families to being a people. Jacob, who becomes known as Israel, 
is first an individual in our text. In the next several chapters, we'll see how his family develops, and eventually we will see at the start of Exodus how Israel is a nation, a people, bound together. So our text starts in Genesis 37. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age and he had made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. They could not speak peaceably to him. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he answered, Here I am. So he said to them, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. And he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, A man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance. And before he came near them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer, the master of his dreams. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we shall say a wild animal has devoured him and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit in the wilderness But lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of of their hand and restore him to his father. So Joseph came to his brothers and stripped him of his robe and the long robe with sleeves that he wore. They took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum and balm and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What proof is it if we kill our brother? What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? 
Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and lay not our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. Then some Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've taken on a new task lately. I'm working with women at the YWCA who have been victims of domestic violence. And they have this support group where we're supposed to be helping lift them up out of the mentality that let them be in domestic violence situations in the first place. It's a very interesting group because some of them are very long away, far along in the program, and those women, you can tell right away, kind of have it together. They have self-esteem. They understand the way the world operates. They have formed some good relationships in their lives. And then there are others who are new to the program who don't have a sense of those things at all. This last week, one in particular, as we were trying to be positive and talk about self-esteem, what things are you good at? What things do you want for your life? What does your future look like? She could not come up with a single thing. She said to me, being in the relationship I've been in, it's just hard for me to see anything good. We'll work on that, I said. Eleanor Roosevelt said, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. See, dreaming is related to looking toward the future. This woman is proof that those who stop dreaming or can't dream also stop hoping. It's the notion sort of that Langston Hughes had when he talked about a dream deferred, you know, like the African-American experience in the 60s in, 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 in America was, was such that a whole people couldn't look forward. They had to defer their dreams to some other time. Often those who are the least and the last are those who need hope the most and the best. The hopeless are the ones who need to dream. No, I was not born when MLK stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and spoke about, I have a dream. But his I have a dream was the notion... 
to a people who might have seemed hopeless that there could be something better. That we might one day not be judged by the color of our skin, but the content of our character. That is hope for people. Those are what dreams are about. Dreams bring hope to a people, and ultimately this is what Joseph is about. But so much happens first. Jacob, that big dummy, these people will never learn how to parent children. He picks a favorite. And not only does he pick a favorite, he does something to prove he's a favorite so that everybody knows it. He gives him a fancy coat. He might as well tattoo a sign on his forehead that says, this is my favorite kid. And by the way, the rest of you, you're not. And on top of all of that, because he's a favorite, Joseph turns into a total brat. He tattles on his brothers. Well, that'll endear you to them, won't it? And he brags about his big dreams. In my dream, you're going to bow down to me. It happens twice, so it must be true. What a twerp. The text kind of sets us up here to be a little bit on the brother's side, at least. It is a very old pattern for this family's dysfunction. An inept father. Ultimately, an inept father who gets deceived by his son and brothers who live in conflict. And why are the brothers in conflict? Because the last will be first. And that is the way it is in reality in these stories, but it also seems to be the way that God designs things. Right? You look at this and you wonder, why can't these people figure this out? Isaac, the younger son, ends up being over Ishmael. Jacob, the younger son, ends up being over Esau. And Joseph, the youngest son, ends up being over all the brothers, 11 of them. You know, when the Jews pray to this day, they pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sometimes in more inclusive circles, they pray to the God of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Rachel. What they never do 
Let's pray to the God of Abraham and Hagar, Ishmael and Esau, and Judah. Somewhere along the line, God has declared that the last will be first. Later in the Gospels, we hear the first will be last. And the last will be first. Somehow I think we're okay with the notion that the first will be last. If we're somewhere in the middle, it seems somehow right that, you know, somebody who's rich as Rockefeller, Andrew Andrew Carnegie or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, they ought to be last. That still leaves us somewhere in the middle. But maybe not when we're talking about the firstborns. You know, this text is written from the notion of the lasts. It wants us to know that Isaac is the one, that Jacob is the one, that Joseph is the one. But how do the firsts feel? when the last take their place. The first can't stand it. In this case, we see the brothers are so angry that they want to take his robe. They want to throw him in a pit. They want to let wild animals devour him. They want him dead because if he is dead, his dream is dead. The one way to kill his dreams is to kill him off. I can't stand the notion that the last could be first. And again... We can find some sympathy for that position, can't we? But they don't kill him off. See, here's the thing. The dream continues. Somebody asked me last week, when do we get to the part about Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat? You know, I'd love that musical. And I went, well, it's next week. And then I thought to myself, you know, I've never seen that musical. I think I better watch it this week. So I did. I watched the Donny Osmond version. It's very charming. And I can't wait till next week to preach about Potiphar's wife because... Joan Collins plays Potiphar's wife, the sexiest woman alive. That's got to be fun, right? And I liked it. It was fun. It was good. It presented the whole story well. But you know, it doesn't make one mention of God. And there's part of that that's correct, because the text doesn't either. 
But underlying all of this is God's promise. The dreams of the dreamer come from God. Now, God's promise to Joseph does not come directly through God at first. At first, it comes to Jacob. But Joseph has a dream. And in the dream, it demonstrates something remarkable about God's future. Part of God's future is the last will be first. But understand this. In the ancient Near East, they never understood a person having a dream that did not come from the gods. Isn't that awesome? I have, in my own spiritual life, had some times when I have had dreams where God has spoken to me, told me what direction to go, what God wants me to do, where I'm supposed to be, what the future might look like. People, when I tell them that, think I'm crazy. I'm not, let me assure you. But there are times when you know that God is present in your life. And some of those dreams have been those times for me. And I'm sure that was true for Joseph. And I'm sure that that's what the text wants us to know. That God's plan, no matter how awful the life is that we have to go through to get there, will continue. God's vision for the future is greater than us, is greater than our own abilities, is greater than the world's abilities to kill it, is greater than all we can know. God will not let the dream die. What kind of God would that be? Here's a dream. Here's hope for the future, you hopeless people. Here's all you need to succeed in your life. Oh, whoops, I'll take it back. Because your brothers are mad. Because it doesn't look like for the youngest brother to succeed over the oldest ones. No, that's not who God is. God gives us promises and dreams to make our future bright, to keep us in God's plan forever. Harriet Tubman said this, Every great dream begins with a dreamer. Always remember, you have it within you, the strength, the patience, and the passion to reach for the stars and to change the world. Amen.